2: I'm Carl Cantania. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Cantania here at the New York Stock Exchange. Deirdre Bosa is in Miami for e-merge. Julia is in Hollywood ahead of Netflix earnings tonight. And that's where we're going to start this hour. Of course, Netflix down 40 percent since January. Could today's results lead to a turnaround? Then is a buyout of Twitter imminent? Apollo enters the bidding here in some ways. Later, is Robinhood overvalued or undervalued? Both sides of that debate after a crypto expansion abroad this morning, deep.
0: Our feed begins though with Netflix. Just hours from reporting results for what some are calling here a make or break quarter for the stock. Julia Borsten with us on why and what to expect, Julia. Still all about those sub numbers.
3: Absolutely, D. Analysts say this afternoon's subscriber outlook is Netflix's moment of truth. After last quarter's weak guidance for the addition of just two and a half million subscribers in this quarter sent that stock plummeting. With Netflix shares down about 30, 43% this year and 38% over the last 12 months, the stock is sure to move on the company's guidance for the next quarter and whatever insight they give us into the rest of the year. Analysts are expecting the company to forecast the addition of about 2.6 million subs in the second quarter. Netflix's subscribers will reveal the impact of competition, the impact of suspending the service in Russia, of inflation and economic uncertainty, plus price hikes and Netflix's crackdown on password sharing. Rosenblatt initiating coverage of Netflix today with a neutral rating, analyst Barton Crockett saying he expects growth to have eased up, saying, quote, this speaks to a tough streaming battlefield, surging choices and changing consumer behavior post-COVID. Jeffries, with a hold rating, pointing to some silver linings, saying they like the fact that Netflix has a growing content library and platform that gives it options to find value in gaming and ad-supported content. So we may hear hear more tonight from uh, both Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos about Netflix's investments in games and also live experiences and when those investments will really start to pay off. Guys?
0: So, Julia, all eyes are going to be on that Q2 subscriber growth guidance, but this has historically seasonally been a weaker quarter for that number. Is there any chance that we could actually see a contraction?
3: Well, look, I think there is an expectation that there will be contraction in the U.S.-Canada region. That's the region that is most saturated and also where there's the most competition. So I think there's an expectation of a contraction there, but overall growth Um, 2.6 million. And a lot of that is just because of the international opportunity. There's this question, though, of course, whether those international subscribers are less valuable than the domestic subscribers. Um, So a, a number of different pieces at play. And then also that question about where how the price hikes are working and how much more opportunity there is to raise prices around the world.
2: Uh, Julia, we're going to talk more about it. Our next guest likes the stock at 450, about $100 north of where it trades right now. Cities Media and Entertainment analyst Jason Bazinet joins us. Jason, thanks for the time this morning. Uh, we talked about some of the challenges they have, at least with regard to the guidance. Um, seasonal Q2 is not usually the strongest, though, is it?
1: No, it's not. Um, but you know, it's really interesting I, when I think about this company. Um, I call it the original sin. If you went back to 2019, actually, um, you know, Netflix told the street they wanted to glide towards free cash flow, and what the sell-side analysts did is they kept their net ad numbers aloft but moderated content spend. And there's a very strong correlation between the growth in content spend and net ads. And so they got this benefit during COVID, where the content spend came down, the net ads were really good. And, and now it's sort of, you know, what I would call the new normal, which is more modest subgrowth. The good news is, um, you know, the stock now reflects more muted subgrowth.
2: Right. Right. Um, do you think there need to be, I mean, some have called for an ad-based tier for a long time. Uh, it always gets pushed back immediately from management. Do you ever see that uh, breaking or bending?
1: You know, I guess it's possible. It's certainly not in our forecast, not in our base case, but it's certainly possible. I mean, everyone else is doing it, right?
0: So Jason, it's possible. How likely is it then? And at this point, you know, do you think it's kind of an inevitability? Does Netflix lose the longer um, that they hold out? And what do you think the argument is gonna make if they're gonna continue to be against an ad supported base or model, sorry?
1: Yeah, I just view it as sort of a free call option, right? I mean, what everyone's doing when you do an ad-supported tier is you're sort of lowering the price. You're giving the consumer choices. There are a lot of companies that held out and didn't offer ad-supported tiers and more and more are moving that direction. So it's just a free call option for investors. I mean, the weird part right now is investor sentiment is so negative on everything that's software-based, everything that's streaming-based, that when, when companies go out and do an ad-supported tier, it's not viewed as good news, which it was a few years ago. It's viewed as bad news. Right? It's like, oh, no, now they have to do the ad-supported tier to keep the sub-growth going. I mean, that's just how dour the street's mood is right now. It's incredible.
0: <laughs> yeah, especially after so much spending on content. Um, Jason, what do you expect to hear, if anything, regarding their gaming strategy? I mean, clearly they're serious. They have bought three gaming studios, which is suggesting an appetite for more. But this fundamental question, people don't go to Netflix for gaming. Are they going to be able to convince people to do that?
1: You know, I think this speaks to some, you know, a concern that we had about Netflix for years and years, which is, you know, our core thesis is most content is not globally scalable. You know, you are going to have a Squid Games or something that's the exception, but the rule in Hollywood is content is local, right? So what I think Netflix is, is bumping up against is not so much a belief that um, gaming is going to be this huge business. It's It's really more through the lens of what sort of content is created that is indeed globally scalable? And and gaming is, you know, watching videos or a movie is not. And so that's what it is. It's a more efficient way to get content out there that is globally scalable. And that, that's going to help the efficiency of the, of, of, or I'll call it the scalability of the business more than anything else. But I right. don't view it as a standalone revenue stream.
2: More tactically, uh, we pointed out earlier this morning, I think it's traded down on 13 of the last 15 earnings prints, uh, the wrap. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The wrap has a piece out today, um, uh, quoting some some uh, strategists who actually don't know which metric it will trade on. On the on the heels of the actual print, is it sub guidance? Is it something about uh, international? Is it is it pricing related? I, I wonder what what line you go to first. Which is the metric?
1: Well, th- th- this is what's so weird about this environment right now. I'll just give you one simple metric that we use. Right. We say, we start bottoms up. We say, if you take the ARPU and the gross profit margins and the customer acquisition costs, what is the sub worth? In the old days, if you bought Netflix's stock, you were underwriting sort of a doubling or a tripling of the sub growth to get comfortable with the stock price. At, at the price now where Netflix is trading, you're sort of close to one to one, meaning you don't need a lot of sub growth or improvement in the economic value of a sub to justify the stock. So what are the bears all pushing for? They're saying, "Oh, you know, this is going from a growth to value stock, right? They want to push it down to a multiple of earnings or a multiple of free cash," um, and that that's fine. But I, I think the reality is is that this company is still adding subs. Is the sub growth more modest than it was during the the salad days of COVID when we were all locked down? Yes. Does it mean the growth is over for the company? No. What do I think the stock trades on this quarter? You know, it's probably net ads, as you guys suggested. Um, but in the sub outlook, it's probably true. But again, this is like a weird world we're living in where uh, what is a net ad metric? A net ad metric is a growth stock, right? And yet the, yeah. s- the stock isn't trading. It's not valued like a growth <laughs> stock. So it's sort of a tweener, right? And that, that's, that's why it's a very good question that you're asking. But it's probably net ads until, until we get enough earnings or free cash flow, right? Which is what the bears want to push the stock down to.
0: So, Jason, if it is still net ad, same question that I posed to Julia, is there a possibility that we could actually see a contraction in that number in the quarter ahead, especially when you take Russia out of the equation, which has, what, about a million subs?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's certainly possible. It's certainly possible. Um, and I think you guys, you know, called it right. What you know, would that if, mean if for it, the stock? If it was aggregate negative in, in the, for the quarter, yeah, I think it's, it's probably down, right. right? people. Yeah, I would say probably down, you know, if we end up seeing negative subs, right? then then the bears will win. It'll go, you know, to a pure value stock, right? People will sort of focus on the earnings and the free cash flow. We're almost at a point where you can justify the stock if you roll forward a bit on, on earnings. The problem is is there's not a lot of free cash flow out of the company, right? And, th- and that's the whole disparity between earnings and free cash flow on Netflix is really content amortization, which is a whole nother debate that the street is having on whether or not this is a good business or not, right? And, um, you know, TBD, but, the, but that earnings and free cash flow have to converge, whether the earnings come down and the free cash goes up as a TBD.
2: Right. Well, management told us long ago that COVID was going to be a pull forward and uh, it sure looks like they were right. We're going to see to what degree uh, tonight. Jason, thanks so much. Good to see you as always. Jason yeah, yeah Bazin. absolutely. Be well.
0: We turn now to twitter sources telling cnbc that private equity firm apollo has now entered the ring to possibly help finance the takeover of twitter so what would such a deal look like and how likely is it to actually happen our leslie picker joins us with those details leslie hey deirdre yeah this is really par
4: for the course in buyouts an asset like twitter becomes quote in play meaning that potential acquirers start informally circling private equity firms surface as potential bidders, and those who finance such offers start waving their hands, looking to get in on the action, having discussions with bankers and consultants and the like. Now, enter private credit funds. Yes, you may know Apollo for its buyouts. Think of things most recently like takeovers of companies such as Yahoo and Michaels, but Apollo actually has a massive credit arm as well, comprising more than $350 billion in assets. That's actually about 70% of the firm's total $5 million dollars in assets. Its credit arm is used to help other private equity firms finance takeovers. Apollo has partnered with tech buyout shop Toma Bravo in the past, which is a firm that's rumored to be considering a bid. However, I haven't independently confirmed how serious that firm is with regard to a takeover of Twitter. Now, I'm told Apollo could also participate in some sort of preferred equity financing or pipe as well. But again, All of this incredibly early stage, very exploratory, a source tells me Apollo at this point in time is not interested in buying Twitter, but like anyone in the financing business is seeing whether they can provide support from a debt or equity side to help someone else, be it Elon Musk or another P.E. firm, buy this asset, guys.
2: Uh, Leslie, I guess the magic question is going to be whether there's a universe of players beyond Apollo that might be considering the same thing, or do you think the road sort of of ends with them?
4: No, there are, and um, I know that there are. I'm working on nailing down specifics. I will bring those to you as I get them, but no, Apollo Mm -hmm. is not the only credit shop that's circling this in terms of financing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's likely that Toma Bravo is not the only private equity firm that's also looked at this. Um, It's Like I said, it's an asset that's in play regardless of how serious these potential bidders are, regardless of how serious Twitter is about actually selling and whether that's the appropriate defense right now, if you want to call it defense, um, you know, from its unsolicited offer from Elon Musk. But absolutely, this is something that's caught Wall Street's attention. People are looking at how they could play a role. Now, the seriousness is another question. The price, another question.
0: (laughs) Fascinating, Leslie. We look forward to those details, especially since... It may be such an unusual <laughs> deal for an LBO target. Uh, thank you. Former Zillow yes, CEO and Palantir board member Spencer Raskoff, he joins us now on this. Spencer, uh, it has certainly been exciting, interesting, fascinating to watch What this first time we've had you on with us uh, since this all started. What are you making of it so far?
5: Well, it it must be quite a distraction for Twitter employees, I guess, as a former public company CEO, that's the first place I go. Um, You know, the second place I would go is, I think, as anticlimactic as it might be, the most likely scenario is that nothing happens, is that Elon sells his shares at a very large profit and walks away. The second most likely scenario is a private equity firm does a pipe, meaning they invest in Twitter. But Twitter stays public, and Elon doesn't yet catch his uh, doesn't catch his prey. Um, you know, and the market seems to agree with me. Obviously, if the market thought Elon's bid was going to be accepted, it would be closer to the offer price. If they thought his bid was going to be pops, the price would be higher than his offer price. But uh, as of now, you know, the market is saying this probably ends up not getting done.
0: So, Spencer, if, if that's the ultimate outcome and this ends up not getting done, what does that mean for Twitter? I mean, we've talked so much about how this stock hasn't gone anywhere. It's struggled to monetize, even struggled to grow. Um, what, what happens? Do you think that that would be a negative?
5: Well, I mean, Twitter is really in, in the crosshairs of what motivated Elon in the first place, which is this battle between yeah. free speech and content moderation while also trying to build a business plan or business model on top of it. It's always been very difficult to to monetize user generated content because some advertisers don't want to be in that type of environment. So if Elon were to walk away and the company remains independent, I think they'll continue the path that they were already on under this leadership, which is to err on the side of content moderation and to try to reduce the hate speech and continue to, you know, some would say um, validate accounts. Elon Musk would say censor accounts. In other words, keep Donald Trump and others off of Twitter is the general trajectory that the company is on. I think that's probably the trajectory that it will continue on if it stays independent.
2: So, Spencer, if in fact this is a dead end on the Musk bid, uh, it's not like he's going to exit the platform completely. He's going to continue to tweet. It's a big part of his social currency. And I, I would imagine he'll continue to keep the board on the defensive, just on operations. I wonder how you think they respond to that since they are unlikely to be able to re, uh, be as free speaking in, 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 the, in the, their communication.
5: Well, that's exactly right, Carl. I mean, this Elon headache is not gonna go away for the Twitter management team, even if he goes away as a shareholder. In fact, if he's not a shareholder, he'll probably be even more unencumbered and more a thorn in the side of Twitter management, continuing to be a gadfly um, and and you know throw tomatoes from the sideline at Twitter about everything. Um, and you know I think this is of course why he ultimately didn't join the board is once you're on the inside and you do have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, then your wings are clipped somewhat. so uh, Twitter is really between a rock and a hard place either they end up selling the company at maybe a price they didn't think was full value or they end up having Elon walk away, which seems like a win but it's not really a win because he's still going to be using their own platform to throw you know to throw tomatoes at them so, I mean, it's a it's a really difficult situation to be in. And where I started the conversation is kind of where I'll you know where I'll go back to, which is it must be a very distracting environment for a Twitter employee to be in. You know, imagine sitting in a product review or a um, you know a, a sales meeting today at Twitter headquarters or working remotely at Twitter with all of these distractions around. And this is a company that has always had these types of distractions. Actually, its success. In the face of all of these distractions, it's quite amazing. Actually, there's probably no company that's been more, you know, more talked about and and uh, had more uh, curveballs thrown its way than Twitter.
2: Well, we generally say uh, punches above its weight in influence, given uh, its DAU size, but it's yeah. the way in which it steers uh, cultural conversation. Speaking of that, though, the the internal um, angst among employees. I wonder what you make of Dorsey's uh, seeming recent uh, willingness to step into conversations where he's not necessarily uh, involved. Uh, Last night, responding to CNN about whether the media provides hope. I mean, is that is he enabling some of that distraction?
5: I mean, yes, he is. I mean, you know, yet another yet another complication. And, um, you know, the shadow of former founders and former CEOs, especially if they're still on the board, as, as, as he currently is. I mean, that can be very Confusing. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm at a I'm at a real estate conference here in New York, and uh, I'm just walking the halls, meeting a lot of former Zillow employees who I'm you know friends and their former colleagues of mine. And I haven't been at Zillow in a couple of years, but you know we still have a lot of connectivity. So you can be sure that when someone like Jack Dorsey is tweeting from the sidelines, or not even from the sidelines, from the field. Employees are listening. Employees see that. And again, that's further confusing. Um, it's difficult for the management team, the leadership team there to get people to focus. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's it's a tough operating environment to be in. Um, we certainly had yeah. plenty of distractions at Zillow, but nothing, nothing approaching what Twitter is experiencing today.
0: And especially when Elon Musk says that there could be a large number of jobs on the line. Spencer, finally, as a founder, one that serves on different boards. What do you make of the Twitter board's incentives, the poison pill? Are their incentives aligned with shareholders and what is best for the business? Or as you know, Elon Musk has claimed, are they interested only in keeping their seats?
5: I, I don't think that's a fair criticism. No, I don't think anyone on that board is motivated by the two or $300,000 a year in compensation that they get from sitting on the board of Twitter. Uh, they're trying to do what they think is right for Twitter shareholders and they're trying to maximize value for those shareholders. And the reason that poison pills exist is to prevent activist investors, whether they be a single investor like um, a Ryan Cohen or an Elon Musk, or uh, a hedge fund investor like a Bill Ackman or a Carl Icahn. Poison pills try to prohibit or prevent these investors from sneaking up on companies and ending up acquiring a controlling interest without paying a control premium. And so the Twitter board is trying to do its job, saying, hey, look, as recently as a year ago, our stock was in the sixties or seventies. So thanks for your 50 something dollar offer, but that's not fair value. And I think they're motivated by the right thing. Um, uh, but, um, uh, but, But again, they have their work cut out for them and they're absolutely under a bright shining light and under the media's glare as we're all watching what they do as they try to navigate, not just any activist investor, not just the richest person in the world, but the most successful entrepreneur of all time and a sitting CEO of two massive companies. I mean, this is not just any old hedge fund activist. This is Elon Musk. So it's, uh, you know, it is a hairy, hairy situation to be, to find yourself in.
0: <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, well said, Spencer. Thanks for being with us, Spencer Raskoff. Thank you.
2: Meantime, it's been choppy waters for Cyber Names this year. Valuations sinking and buyouts increasing. Time to get a shark's take. Robert Herjavec going to join us on the other side of this break. Stay with us.
5: Imagine you're on a John Deere mower, with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com/get-in-the-seat or visit a dealer near you.
0: Gut check on Microsoft shares are down nearly 20% since January, and analysts they aren't sure that a turnaround is ahead. Citi cutting its target to 3.55, Wells Fargo slashes its revenue forecast. Barclays thinks that a slowdown in growth is coming. Still, there is not a single sell rating on the street for Microsoft. The average price target comes in around 369 and that is about a 30% premium on where it is trading this morning. Shares today are up about 1.5%. And, Carl, what's interesting, especially about that Barclays note, is that they're not cautious on the whole sector. In fact, they're confident on companies like Qualtrics and Datadog, but they point to potential nervousness around growth in office, which we have been talking about.
2: Yeah, office 365 is going to be the big question mark as uh, as earnings come forward just how big of a player can it possibly become in the enterprise? We'll watch that closely, Dee. Uh, in the meantime, private equity is lasering in on one sector this year, and that is cybersecurity. Toma Bravo buying SailPoint for just under $7 billion. Kaseya purchasing Datto for six. billion. Toma Bravo turning uh, Barracuda around to KKR for about $4 billion. All of this with the war in Ukraine going on, crypto hacks and other vulnerabilities still at the top of mind for investors. What kind of exposure should your portfolio have to cyber? Joining us this morning, Sidaris. Cy- CEO Robert Herzovec of Shark Tank fame joins us here at Post Nine. It is great to have you back on the floor, Robert. It's great to be yes. back in
6: person. Yeah.
2: Um, let's just talk about the environment regarding, I guess, the backdrop is constructive for better or worse, right? Given the turmoil around the world.
6: Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great time to be in our space. I mean, I think you've got all kinds of tailwinds in our space, including the war in Ukraine, and obviously. A lot of it is also being driven by compliance. There's a lot of board regulations now that require CEOs to have cyber security experience. Somebody on your board has to have experience with it. You've got to spend a certain amount of money on it. So it's a combination of compliance, the war in Ukraine, and just general increase in
2: hacks. Right. Now, a lot of that was going on and valuations weren't necessarily reflecting it.
6: What do you think flipped the switch? I think what we've seen and what we saw personally is COVID was the greatest accelerator of time and business cycles in our space. So it's one of the reasons I did an equity deal about a year ago, because I think our space is going to continue to grow, accelerate. You're seeing all the M&A as everything's brought forward. So I think it's going to be a very robust time.
2: Do you think the M&A is happening because clients want... Uh, a single, as few vendors as possible, or they want to see the market consolidate? Why do you think so much activity in the M&A that we just mentioned?
6: What we're seeing in the enterprise space is incredible complexity. The average enterprise today has 72 security products. How can you keep up with that? So I think what people are seeing is there's going to be a lot of consolidation, putting those solutions together, and the face of threats. It's all about risk. Who can help me manage my risk? And I think there's going to be a lot of upside. What has changed, though, is the focus on EBITDA. I think in the last few months, if you're not making money, you're going to get hit from a valuation perspective.
2: So from that standpoint, of of the public names that we follow, who who do you think is interesting?
6: I think you're going to see a lot more acquisitions. I really like CyberArk. There is a general feeling in our space that identity is the new perimeter. So you as a person, you as you log on, that's your new identity. So I really like CyberArk in a privilege access space. Obviously, Tom Bravo liked SailPoint. I thought that was a great company. We do a lot of work with them, very bullish on them. I think you're gonna see some good upside on Palo Alto. They have a new technology in XDR, which is a new version of endpoint security. So I think you're gonna see the network, the endpoint, all those things come together.
2: You know, uh, when there is a a major hack, it tends to make news, maybe not as much as it did a few years ago, but it makes news. The thing we don't hear about are the the hacks that were prevented. And I wonder if you think companies will get more proactive about saying, look what we kept from happening.
6: Well, I think there's a new regulation coming out. I forget what it's called, where if you have a hack, even though it's been prevented, you'll have to announce it. And so I think companies are going to do more with that. But I do think, Carl, that we're seeing a shift in terms of services premiums. When there's so many products, how do you keep up? And so I think you're going to see a lot of value and growth in services companies, which is obviously self serving what we do in a managed security space. Right.
2: Finally, government policy have they been sort of shepherding this whole movement uh, efficiently, or is it? A mess of regulation, confusing messages from the White House or Congress?
6: No, I think the government's doing a great job. We saw President Biden come out and announce that everybody needs to be more vigilant. I think there's obviously the war in Ukraine isn't slowing down. And I think we all have to be careful out there. If you're a large enterprise and you have any exposure to Russia or the Eastern Bloc in that sense, you know, Russia is not going to go quietly into the night. We're going to see more attacks, and I think people just have to be much, much more vigilant. This is just the beginning.
2: Right, that's the trend not going away. It's great to have you back. Yeah, the day. great to be
6: back in person. <laughs> we'll yeah, see you soon. Robert. Thanks.
2: Let's get a news update this morning and get back to Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha.
7: Hey, Carl. Good morning to you. Shares of American campus communities are soaring 13 percent today. The company will be taken private by Blackstone for nearly $13 billion, including debt. Blackstone appears to be anticipating higher rents for student housing as colleges reopen after COVID. Despite higher mortgage rates, U.S. housing starts edged up three-tenths of a percent in March, but starts for single-family homes fell by 1.7%. Johnson & Johnson will stop providing revenue guidance for its COVID vaccine, citing uncertainty over demand and a global supply surplus. It also lowered its full-year earnings and revenue guidance. The stock is up 4% to an all-time high, with Wall Street apparently focusing on j better than expected quarterly profit. And in an example of wage inflation in a tight jobs market, Verizon Wireless is raising its minimum wage to $20 an hour for customer service and retail employees. It's also offering a signing bonus for retail specialist and assistant manager positions. A lot of folks getting higher wages these days, Deirdre.
0: Bertha, thank you so much. Meanwhile, we have some breaking news on Disney. Julia back with that. Julia, what's going on?
3: Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has asked the state legislation in Florida to consider ending The special tax districts, these were established back um, before 1968. And these have effectively allowed Disney to operate Walt Disney World as a separate entity and to govern that 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 property and that land independently. So this, of course, comes after a conflict between Disney and the Florida governor over this so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, um, this legislation that has passed in Florida. Disney has recently come out in opposition to it, um, and this is part of that whole conflict. We have reached out to Disney for a comment on this. We have not heard back, but we hopefully will be hearing back from them soon. Disney shares are making gains today. That stock up more than 3.5%. Deirdre, we will continue to see what the latest is on this story.
0: Yeah, we know you'll bring us any developments. Uh, Julia, thanks so much for that. Meanwhile, keep an eye on Plug Power today. The Hydrogen Company inking a deal with Walmart to deliver up to 20 tons of liquid hydrogen per day to power their fulfillment centers and vehicles. Shares, they are popping some 8% on that news. More tech check after the break. Stay with us.
1: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called rider's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI.
8: Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction.
1: Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block.
8: Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.
0: It's been a volatile ride lower for the NASDAQ since January, but what are the names avoiding the instability? Dom Chu joins us to break down the action. Dom, we got to be talking relative instability here.
9: It's all relative, right? So, markets, to your point, years are all about relativity. And when it comes to volatility, it's the same kind of story. So we took a look at a measure of volatility called market beta. It basically measures how much a stock moves in and out or up and down compared to the broader market overall. Now, the reason why we're looking at these three sectors, consumer discretionary, technology, and communication services, is because these three sectors are the three worst-performing sectors in the entire S&P 500 on a year-to-date basis. And you could make the case that they're the most important because they house many of the biggest stocks out there that have a huge effect on the way the markets work, especially with the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. So if you take a look at the market betas for each of these particular stocks versus what happens with the market overall, The ones that have the most volatility compared to the broader market in the U.S. are maybe names that you're not unfamiliar with at this point. If you take a look, one of the most volatile ones compared to the broader market is and has been Tesla over the last several years. Now, we looked at the three year beta. According to data from FactSet. Tesla right now has a market or a beta rather of 2.8 versus the broader market, which we'll just say is one. Now, that's a that's a big deal. DXC technology is closer to around 2.4, so more than twice as volatile as the market, up or down. And then Etsy is at two, so three of the most volatile names with regard to the relative volatility in the market, are those three in those sectors meanwhile some of the ones with the least amount of volatility which don't move nearly as much up or down when the markets move up or down are three very large cap mega cap names that we've come to know very well as well microsoft has a beta below one closer to 0.9 oracle is closer to around 0.8 and intel is about 0.6 so these are Large slash mega cap technology oriented names do not move as much up or down with the broader market overall. So, Deirdre, when it comes to volatility, yes, relative is the key word there. And by the way, if you're curious or if viewers are curious, over on my Twitter feed at the Domino, I put out the 10 biggest market cap companies in those three sectors and what the market beta is for each of them. It's pretty interesting. Tesla 2.8, But Apple is 1.4, and Meta Platforms is pretty close to that same amount as well. So just some more information for you guys, Deirdre.
0: I like that. You shouldn't be necessarily surprised by Tesla, but for such a big stock, a big market cap, to be that volatile is interesting. Dom, thanks for that look. You got it. Next up, we are talking tech with AOL co-founder Steve Case. Don't go away. The Nasdaq is up nearly 2% right now, the Dow up nearly 400 points, and big tech is gearing up to report earnings next. Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, they're all on deck in the coming weeks. Here with me now, Miami AOL co-founder and Revolution chairman Steve Case. He is also the author of the upcoming book, Rise of the Rest, how entrepreneurs in surprising places are building the new American dream. Steve it's great to have Good you. To
10: Good to be here in Miami, a rising, rising city, rising exactly, the
0: Exactly. A perfect example. Yeah, exactly. I know we were on the main stage yesterday. We had a great conversation. We can continue that. You know a thing or two about big tech having mm-hmm. run AOL, mm-hmm. seeing its dominance. Um, when you look at the tech giants today and their dominance, do they stay on top over the next decade? What do you look for? Is it possible to sort of discern that quarter to quarter?
10: Well, in the long run, they, obviously they're terrific companies, will continue to be terrific companies, but 10, 20 years from now, the leaders will likely be somewhat different. Some of the leaders today will still be there, other new companies, perhaps some on, you know, here in Miami today that are just emerging will, will surprise people and be big companies. That's the nature of creative destruction, the yeah. nature of, of, of markets, and, and we'll continue to see that kind of uh, innovation.
0: At the same time, AOL, you know, over its journey, tried to acquire companies like Facebook and YouTube, and you've seen these big tech giants actually doing that. Facebook obviously has had a string of acquisitions, Alphabet with YouTube. Does that help them stay on top? And what's the regulatory environment right now? You've Microsoft and Activision, but many thought, this is going to be a much tougher environment to do no, this. Obviously,
10: M&A is a way to continue to you know, expand your portfolio, not just rely on internal innovation, but external acquisitions. And we did a lot of that at AOL with companies like Netscape and then obviously with Time Warner and, and others. The, the, getting the deal done is one thing. Managing that asset yeah. in a smart way is, is another. And the integration of those things are, it can be a little bit uh, tricky. And I do think with big tech now, there is more scrutiny. I think some of the companies that, that might be thinking that acquisitions might be smart for them to, to expand their their portfolio recognize that in Washington, Brussels, other places, uh, there's a little bit more caution and, and there's a little more, more, more difficult path to getting those deals done, so that likely reduces some of their willingness to take a shot. But you'll see some of those, and over the next year or two, some of those will end up passing muster and getting done, and some probably will get turned down.
0: I mentioned Microsoft Activision, um, and that's you know a big deal that regulators are taking a hard look at. You're sitting in D.C. right, right now. Uh, what do you think the chances are for that I don't
10: know the chances specifically of that deal. I do think Microsoft's done a good job in the last couple decades after you know, having some real challenges 25 years ago. The government tried to break them up, They're antitrust issues in terms of unbundling the operating system and so forth. Uh, I think they learned that lesson and have been much more engaged with policymakers around the world. And that's actually positioned them well. They've been able to get some things done that, that others couldn't. So maybe they'll be able to pull this off, but, but I don't know enough of the details to know exactly where it stands or to predict what might happen.
0: Speaking of deals, the one that uh, everyone is talking about, even here in Miami, is certainly Elon Musk's bid for Twitter. Um, what are your thoughts on that, especially as someone who has founded a company, been CEO of a company, now works with a bunch, bunch of different startups. What do you make of that bid, and would that be good for
10: you? Well, them? I saw CNBC has a special on it today. So I think <laughs> Elon Musk is for business news, with Donald Trump is for politics. Uh, it drives interest in ratings. Obviously, Elon's one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time, uh, and what he's built with the Tesla and SpaceX. Is incredible. So having somebody like that get involved with Twitter probably is helpful from a product standpoint, rethinking what what could could happen. I think it's a little more challenging to think of what's happened on the the business side, the profit side. He's talked about doing some things around advertising and and so forth that that might reduce the the earnings of the company. So we need a little more clarity on that. And there also are going to be some of these, you know, kind of policy issues that play front and center. uh, This idea of of it really being an open public square makes sense at one level. But, you know, Congress, even before he made his bid, was talking about, taking a fresh look at this 230 provision that was put in place when I was running AOL, uh, and so they'll have a have a, you know, have a say in that as well. So it's great that he's, he's looking to, to try to you know, kind of shake things up and, and take Twitter into, into new directions, but I'd focus on what he can do on the product side, what, he, what would happen on the profit side, which will impact perhaps other interest of in other investors joining him, trying to understand what the business model going forward would be, and then trying to understand the broader context, not just in this country, but around the world, around policies, around social media.
0: Uh, Carl said earlier in the show that Twitter punches above its weight, its valuation is sort of out of step with its influence. And yesterday you told me that good companies to stay on top need to keep innovating. Is yep. Twitter innovating? I That's think
10: they've innovated I joined, I like, joined 15 years ago as one of the first users and watching what's happened in the last 15 years I think it has been very impressive. I'm sure there are things they could do that would, would be more innovative, they could be more agile. Any company when it goes from dozens to hundreds to thousands of employees, things kind of slow down. So I'm sure there's some things that could be done to improve the, uh, the product, but it's not the only thing that, right. that needs attention. There's the other issues that also need to get focused on.
0: And so, Steve, now you are CEO of Revolution, you have a number of portfolio companies, a few that have gone public over the last year, and a pretty tough environment for tech stocks, especially new listings. Um, How are you looking at the IPO window right now, which seems to be shut? How does that get reopened? I think uh, we had
10: a revolution. We had a number of companies, particularly out of our revolution growth fund, go, go public over the last uh, you know, year or so quite, quite successfully. Uh, things have slowed down in the, in the last few months. I'm not surprised because so many companies were going public uh, last year. And when valuations come down because of inflation concerns and just some general market reset, you know, tend to, people tend to be a little more careful about new IPOs. So companies that were thinking of going public, even filed confidentially, have kind of put that on, on hold. But, you know, it's an open question in terms of when that IPO window might open again. Some think it could be as early as June. Some think people think it will be more likely the fall. You know, time will tell. And what generally has happened historically is a major company right. goes public, and that then opens the door for others to follow. So I suspect that will happen this year, but I'm not sure exactly whether right. it's a <laughs> summer di- a dynamic or a fall dynamic.
0: Can put some momentum or confidence back in the IPO market. Exactly. Okay, we'll watch for that. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Show. Appreciate it. Steve Case. Meanwhile, we've got much more from here in Miami. Tune in after the show, we've got another Tech Check Plus live stream. This time with Hong Fang, the CEO of Crypto Exchange OKCoin. OK That's happening at 12.30 p.m. Eastern today as Bitcoin hovers right around 40K this morning. Find us on Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn. We will be right back.
2: Get a gut check on NXP. Citi cuts it uh, from buy to neutral, cuts their target to 190. They're projecting some limited EPS upside. Says it'll be difficult for the stock to outperform with margins nearing their peak. Uh, but bullish on the space overall, pending a drop off in lead time. Uh, recommending names like Micron, Global Foundries, and On Semi. Uh, that said, NXP up 3% in what is a pretty good tape. Dow up 420. Uh, best day in about a month, and 2% gains on the NASDAQ. Tech checks back after this.
0: NASDAQ continues to be up some 2% this morning, and Robinhood is doing some M&A this morning, but given the stock is almost 90% off its highs of the year, uh, Kate Rooney joins us here in Miami with that news and today's edition of Undervalued and Overvalued. <laughs> Kate, I'm so glad you could
11: join me here in Miami. I know, it's great to be here in person, So I love this game, undervalued or overvalued. But Robinhood has agreed to buy British crypto firm Ziglu to help it branch into the UK and Europe. The deal comes two years after Robinhood scrapped its plans to expand into the U.K., and executives have talked a lot about that recently and revamping that effort, especially as the U.S. business and retail trading slows down. The stock has gotten battered since the IPO. You mentioned that, about 90 percent, 87 percent off of its high, and underperforming the S&P by roughly 30 percent so far this year. The bulls would say Robinhood is now undervalued after that big sell-off, pointing to, for one, its crypto business catching up, new products there as well, diversifying away from just payment for order flow and equities with some more bank-like products and, of course, its user interface. They say that is the big differentiator. Robinhood, not profitable yet, so look at its uh, sales price-to-sales ratio. That was 53 times sales last year. It's now come down to around five times sales, so more in line with your typical brokerage name. Charles Schwab, for example, trades at about 7.5. Times sales at this point Robin Hood again not profitable but those who think that it's overvalued would talk about that they also point to some of the slowing growth the lower average revenue per user and Wall Street is still pretty lukewarm on this name target uh, average price target now 16 bucks and half of analysts have a hold on the stock team so let's talk about the bull case.
0: Yeah. It's crypto business. I mean, yes. we talked to the CEOs of different crypto platforms, and there's a price war going on in terms of fees. Yep. Um, it's so this exciting young user base that Robinhood had that everyone was talking about at the IPO just hasn't materialized into cross-selling products, buying other things, It's yeah. still payment for order flow, essentially. Right. Yeah, that's
11: right. No, it's such a good point on the crypto business. They were here at Bitcoin 2022, and they have. A more of a presence in crypto. They've tried to compete on that zero-fee, uh, low-margin side of the business, and said, you know, we actually have offered free trading. they predicted the same phenomenon that we've seen with the brokerage firm, the same reason Jim Chanos is yeah. shorting Coinbase. That they say, fees are going to have to come down, we're going to see compression. So they're betting that they will have sort of an edge there. But you're right, on the younger user base, they've had to move into things like 401Ks, yeah. and some of the stuff that's not as exciting as maybe trading options or crypto. But yeah, they ha- it's it's a long-term strategy, they would say, the Bulls would say, this is going to be the single-money app. But a lot of other fintechs are going for the exact same Yeah, goal. competition, certainly. Yeah. All
2: right, guys, thanks. Uh, Robinhood, meantime, not the only fintech player taking a hit this month. Keep your eye on Affirm. Stock is down more than 20% since the beginning of April and now hovering 80% off the highs of the year. Stay with us. One more thing this morning, and that's who could buy Twitter. Here's David Faber this morning.
7: The more I report, the less I believe there's anybody else that really could show up here. Um, Private equity is not real. That's also marketing. I'm sorry, Orlando Bravo, good for you. Right. You're not doing this deal. I mean, come on. David, what do you hear about? The equity check would need to be 30, 40, Bill. You can't lever this asset effectively. The rates of return don't work for you. What are you going to do, seven private equity firms? No. No. and strategics, Disney, no way. No. Salesforce, I'll leave it to you. Uh-uh, no way. No way. Um, Snap? you kidding me? Okay.
2: Uh, relatively skeptical about uh, the path forward here for <laughs> Musk or another bitter D.
0: I don't blame him. I mean, he makes some good points. However, what I would say to that is don't necessarily sleep on big tech. Would regulators rather a big tech company have it than maybe Elon Musk? And what about all of those crypto billionaires or Dow. I mean, these are all kind of new money options, potentially. I don't know.
2: Yeah, we're going to watch it, obviously, as the, uh, the episode unfolds. Don't forget Netflix and IBM. tonight. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at
8: 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you